developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Thank you to everyone who supports this show and all the shows in the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. If you're not already, you can become a Major Spoilers member by signing up at patreon.com slash major spoilers. And listen, we understand maybe you don't have a whole lot of money that you can contribute each month, but maybe you can be like Nicholas, who is our newest $1 patron. So we ended up with one new patron this week. And it's Nicholas, and all he's doing is a dollar a month. That's great. If we had a thousand of you, two thousand of you, ten thousand of you all doing a dollar a month, we would be sitting pretty, and we'd be able to do a lot more stuff and uh, entertain you even more. So go find out how you can kick in your buck and have your voice read or your name be read here on the show. Not that your voice be read. Um, I don't even know how your voice would be read, but anyway, you could have that here uh, on the show. Patreon.com/slash Major Spoilers. Major Spoilers theme song! The Major Spoilers Podcast is on the air. Pod on on the air. The Major Spoilers Podcast is on the air. On the air. Pod pod podcast. I'm Matthew Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen. If you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, 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 The Major Spoilers Podcast is on the air. Oh, I think this is where I put in the music and it goes do 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 do. And then we we get into our our transition here where we say welcome to the Major Spoilers podcast. We're doing the general topic. If you are a patron, we had a whole bunch of time that we spent talking about Shakespeare and scary movies and I forget what else we talked about. Strikes and a bunch of other stuff. You can find that at the Patreon uh pre-show episode that you can find at patreon.com slash major spoilers. So go and check that out. Everybody is here this week. Thanks to Nicholas. We're able to have all four panelists here at the same time. I wonder who is going to be, I'm, I am going to limit the, the amount of time that some people can talk because mm-hmm. of, of the budget and how that runs, you know, how the internet <laughs> runs. <laughs> I uh, I charge more for any words that I have to say that have the letter Z. Oh, okay. That's difficult. It's difficult for me to pronounce. So. And uh, Rodrigo and I both get a bunch There's of speaking Z a foreign in your language name. correct. Yes, yep. that's that is correct, Ashley. Hey. So I had a crazy dream. Klingon count. I had a crazy dream, <laughs> and it was it was something really weird. But like all the Ted Lasso characters were there, and there was also. Um, the guy who plays uh, Doc Ock uh, and also um, the bad guy that tries to steal Indiana Jones. Alfred Molina was also in there. He was kind of the heavy bad guy. And it was just like, you guys don't need to be, you shouldn't trust him. And so like the, uh, the tall blonde woman from Ted Lasso, I forget what her name is. The shame lady from game of Thrones. Yeah. Is that who that that's is? Not her name, but that's the only thing I've seen. Yeah. Is... She's shame. Oh, wow. Shame, shame. Oh, wow. Shame none. Okay, so the shame nun. Her name because she's actually fabulous. But so she's the shame, shame nun and Alfred Merlina were talking about. <laughs> we're talking about 
uh, working on a like some kind of research paper together. And I was like, no, you need to stay away from Alfred Molina. He's the bad guy. He's really doing the bad stuff here in this storyline of whatever my dream was. And then the the man who is the assistant on the show, the like the business side of the show. They're like, oh, he would be really great to write this paper about Shakespeare. And then he just kind of turns to the both of them and he says, or what if I write a paper on how really it was Black Widow who turned the United States against Captain America in that Iron Man movie? And that was really weird. So what do you think? Do you think that Black Widow in a what if universe, Black Widow would kind of turn on Steve Rogers, Captain America, uh, to uh, position him as an enemy of the state to advance her her communist Soviet uh, agenda? Would that make I mean, an interesting story or no in the what I, if universe? I, in the what if, sure. I, I think you don't even have to look at uh, you know, fictional stories or else worlds or what ifs to have a black widow that's playing both sides. Right. Mm-hmm. That there's, there's a lot of comics and even some shows. I want to say that, um, Oh, what is it? The Avengers show that came out after the Avengers, a cartoon show, um, spends Earth's a lot of, heroes. yeah, it spends some time kind of doing the, is black widow actually bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a really freaky dream that I that it was like, wow, you guys are mixing in all of my pop cultures into one crazy into one crazy dream. Stop that. And then I woke up and you had could. to and then had to go throw up. Why did you have to go throw up? Uh, so I made the mistake of saying, hey, I'm still young. I can eat whatever the heck I want. So I will. I taught you anything. I will go and I will eat some Taco Bell and I will have Mm. two chalupas and a regular soft taco. And then when I get home, oh, look, there is a whole container of little chocolate mini donuts that my wife had bought. I will eat four of those, not four containers, Mm. but four of those donuts. And then, oh, here's a Jolly Rancher. I remember Jolly Ranchers. I shall also eat a Jolly Rancher. And then I washed it all down with. Oh, and then my wife, no, no, no. Uh, then for dinner, my wife, uh, made some, some au jus, you know, the, the roast beef with the au jus sauce. Mm. And of course, au jus sauce is uh, French, I believe, Ashley for just grease and fat. (laughs) It's literally with juice. Yeah. And so just imagine all of that stuff sloshing around in your belly and you wake up at two in the morning and you're like, oh, something doesn't feel right. Mm. And so then it all came back up. Yeah, I like how. Oh, 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 oh! I forgot the 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 coup de gras on this uh this day of of never forget, uh, flaming hot Cheetos. Nice. Oh, good lord! Yeah. Why? Now, this, of course, this is spread out over like an eight hour period, but still. Even said, respect my digestion digestive track i think not <laughs> i kind of felt like some i kind of felt like fear and some uh <laughs> metamucil yeah yeah, yeah uh, uh ashley and rodrigo probably won't get this unless they are fans of the old little rascals but there was an old little a couple of times in the old little rascals where they would go crazy and eat crazy stuff like that and they'd end up at the doctor and the doctor would slide this x-ray machine in front of their stomach and it would be like the hot dog and the cupcake or having a fight mm-hmm. with one another. They're completely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely whole. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, yeah, that was, that was my waking up after my captain America dream going, Oh, this is not good. Well, that's so why you, go. you had the dream. 
I don't, I don't I mean, think so, but maybe. Set your tummy now. Literally, like, you can't eat like you're 16 anymore. The, I mean, I ate a the whole same pizza thing like two happened weeks ago, to me so. um, this weekend because I went out of town for a wedding, and so I had lunch at a restaurant, and then I ate at the wedding, dinner at the wedding. So I would try, I was tired and I would try to go to sleep. And all that would happen is my stomach felt like a brick Mm -hmm. and everybody was really concerned about whether a new person in town was going to be upsetting to the avatar. (laughs) Like everybody was like, you better not let Cora see this guy. And I'm like, why does that matter? And they're like, you just don't let her see him. She's really upset at him. And I'd like wake up and I'd be like, that is weird. Okay, I'm just going to try to sleep again. And I would go back to go sleep. Right back and I would just land right back yeah. in that dream. And they'd yeah. be like, I think he's over there. And I think Cora's coming. And I'm like, Jesus. Just calm down, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you excited, Rodrigo, for the Legend of Cora RPG or no? I'm interested. Or in I it. should say, um, uh, not Legend of Cora, but it's because it's yeah, just Avatar. Avatar RPG. Yeah. ATLA RPG. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in it, but uh, it's a... Uh, powered by the apocalypse game, I believe, which is fine. I don't have anything against it, but I always hope that if we got any sort of official avatar RPG, it would be um, a little crunchier or a little more uh, sort of like tactical combat-y or mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. abstract combat-y because powered by the apocalypse uh, just kind of cares about different things, right? Yeah. Um, so... I'm interested to see how they do it, um, but I'm not. I'm not like chomping at the bit to see it. Okay, I I, I backed the Kickstarter to get the electronic yeah. version. I'm sure Brian did too, so uh, I'm sure one of us can share that with you. Uh, Cinema Joe's podcast says if Ashley is on, Ashley's always on. There is no yeah. downtime for the Ashley. Uh, we'd that, love to know that her feelings. Definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to know her feelings on the Titans unconventional adaptation of under the red hood and also the show's take on her beloved Tim Drake. It's not just hers. I also beloved. He's been in like two minutes so far. And, and what Um, what is your hot take on that? I'm having a little bit of a hard time enjoying um, this season, knowing that the gentleman who I'm not going to call him a gentleman, the absolute waste of human space who plays the scarecrow assaulted people on set. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that's really um and he's playing a bad guy and everything but it kind of sucks to be like oh cool so then you walked off and like rubbed yourself all over other okay great super uh-huh um i think i come to a piece with titans because i understand that it has nothing to do with anything else that happens to be branded teen titans and because Brandon Thwaites is really good and um, oh, I can't pull the name of the kid who plays Jason Todd, but I really enjoy his take on Jason Todd. Mm. So um, under the Red Hood, I wish it didn't have to do, do with I wish it was. Close. Uh, I wish it didn't have to do with Scarecrow because of the unfortunate implications yeah. of how that person behaved. Um, I appreciate that they're trying to do something different. What I like about Titans is it really goes out of its way to be like, you are never seeing Batman. You are never seeing Superman. You are never seeing Wonder Woman. It's called Titan. It might as well just be called Dick and his amazing friends at this point. But Mm -hmm. like what I like about like Ian Glenn playing Batman, for example, is, and he has some awesome scenes as Bruce. There's like some really good scenes with Bruce and Dick this season, but you are never, 
ever going to see that man in a bat suit. And I really appreciate that because uh, that was a problem that like the Supergirl show had was they kept yeah. having to like not put Superman in it. Yeah. So by making yeah. Batman uh, a little older than we're used to seeing him cinematically, it, it just sort of per that type of media takes it off the table. So um, other than that, I have really been enjoying this season and I think it's because it's very bat family centric. Like they're yeah. hitting, it's basically like the Robins mm-hmm. stories. Um, it happens very quickly. They do under the red hood in basically a half an episode. Oh, wow. Which okay. is, which is fine. Yeah. Jason's dead for like 80 holes. Like I thought the flash moved fast, but Titans has it outstripped by, by a country mile. The only thing they're dragging their heels on is Tim has been in maybe three whole scenes. Um, so I don't think I can make like a fair judgment on um, Jay like her go in the role because he's really not got to do much. Um, he has a great look. He delivered his nine lines with a plum. Um, I like that he's Blasian. I think that that's a really cool thing. And I like that they didn't make him because Tim is traditionally like a rich kid from Bruce's neighborhood. So I mm-hmm. like that he's more um, working class side of Gotham. I just think it makes them more relatable. And I'm hoping IMDB has now updated their episode listings for everybody except Raven, who's been in no episodes this season and is credited with being in all of them. Um, so it looks like he's going to be in three episodes. So I can't wait for him to be in the penultimate episode wherein he says, hmm, maybe I ought to be Robin. And then the ultimate episode wherein he becomes Robin. Because that's, I'm, I'm assuming, how the pace of the show is going to yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I don't really foresee... Um, I don't really foresee a redemption for Jason this season, but they fully brutally murdered one of the Titans. So, I mean, who knows? Anything is possible. Wow. Maybe I should tune into this show. You know, you said that they had to dance around. They had to dance around the whole Supergirl Superman thing. Um, and in that the was pi- in the in the, in the first, first season. season of Supergirl. Yeah. They have to handicap him so bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On a table on his back. Right. With it's just his boots. Right. But on the other hand, when they finally said, yeah, let's just go ahead and do it. We can't dance around this anymore. We got a great Superman out of that. So maybe if they did the same thing here, we'd end up with a this guy who plays Bruce Wayne. Would he be a good Batman? I he's mean, he's a sixty-five-year-old Scottish man. He, then I want to see a, that. He is. He is. He's uh, your hot English professor. Like I would. Lo- I would love to see it. Uh, I thought he was a hottie in Game of Thrones, but I just, I don't see Titans doing that. I want to see uh, a Batman think, in a kilt. I don't think Titans is progressive enough to be like, yeah, put him in a bat suit. Who cares? This is a, a bat kilt. Yeah. A bat kilt. That's what I want to see. Um, Carl writes in and says, questions for the next major spoilers podcast. I recently attended a panel discussion from a virtual comics and zines festival. The topic was abstraction in comics and the panelists showed some fascinating examples. So I have two questions. First question. What is your favorite comic or graphic work that uses abstract imagery, not necessarily throughout, but as an important element? I I really don't know because I, I would have to see what some of these panelists were showing to see that. I think there have been some, and I can't name specific comics, but I know that there are comics that use collage as a means of a lot of collage and fantastic four around 67. Yeah. So I, I think that the use of collage is really interesting in, in comics, but I don't know if that's abstract enough. I think, I think the easy, um, like mainstream answer is, is Morrison's Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I would say big numbers, which sadly will probably never, ever be finished, but it was from like 89. It was, uh, Alan Moore 
at the peak of his uh, fame and Bill Sienkiewicz. And the two issues that got actually printed were just Sienkiewicz going nuts. And if you're familiar with uh, Bill's 80s style, it's already very abstract. It's very angular and impressionistic. But Big Numbers was essentially Alan Moore trying to make a story out of the Mandelbrot set. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz basically trying to actually succeeding, wildly succeeding in taking this concept of weird mathematical symmetry and putting it into a story that's actually relatively mundane. It was supposed to go 12 issues. The first one came out, then the second one came out like a year later, and then I think the company went under, and by the time the, they got back to it, Sienkiewicz couldn't do it. So his sidekick was going to do it, but then the sidekick had some sort of emotional breakdown and destroyed an entire drawn issue. I shouldn't say sidekick. His uh, artistic partner or protege, um, a guy named Columbia, if I can remember correctly, had a friend named Magenta. They drew comics. Rodrigo, do you have do you have an uh, an example? Um, I don't know about a favorite, but I think. A good place to look for abstraction and comics was that early, late 80s, early 90s kind of vertigo stuff. Um, I think, you know, Swamp Thing's got some, um, Sandman's got some. There's, there's just stories within those things that lend themselves to it. And there will be, you know, panels and panels where, like, you're not actually looking at anything concrete. Right. You're just, you know, in dreams or looking at you know, swamps or dreamscapes or whatever. That issue um, long sex sequence between Swamp Thing and Abby where everything has to be abstract. Yeah, yeah. So um, back in those days, they were really letting you, those guys do whatever they wanted. And um, and that's what people kind of wanted in their comics. You know, we, we read, uh, what was that thing where like Batman gets drugged? Um, oh, the, um, the one where he gets uh, with the, uh, Preacher guy and the zombies in the sewers. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Batman so that one, cult. that one has. Yeah, the cult. Yeah. I don't know if it can. I, I don't know how much like full on abstract stuff it it has, but yeah, it definitely has a lot of art that is more evocative of what Batman is feeling rather than here is a guy and here is another guy. Right. Yeah. 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 We're yeah, all dead right. down here. Uh, Carl's second question: It's common to make distinctions between high culture and low low culture or between fine art and illustration or graphic design. Do you think that those are valid question? So really he has three questions here. So valid, valid. I think it's valid. Say. I think it's valid. I think that it's valid, but it's also archaic. Um, well, I, I feel it's like it kind of falls into like, an, a, a, I think it comes across as somewhat elitist, but at mm -hmm. least when you mm -hmm. couch something in a high culture or low culture, it kind of defines what your expectations are. So if you're using it to help define what an expectations are, just like we say a genre, right? So if we say right. action or Western or, um, you know, mystery, we know what to expect when we go into, into that stuff. So I think when you use high culture, low culture or fine art and graphic design, um, I think those are valid in helping you determine what your expectations are when you go into it. I don't think it is, I don't think it's valid to say that um, comic books are low culture and Rembrandt paintings are high culture. 
But comic books have always been low culture. I mean, they were they're literally sure, disposable. But to use it for, but in that case then it becomes a derogatory term, right? Right. And I think that's that's part of it. I mean, if you look at things from when we were kids, uh reading comic books was for instance one of the reasons that we were shown that Gilligan, for instance, was childlike and not as intelligent as the other characters on the island. I mean, when you when you look at, at least for me, modern culture and the way things have been, you know, things have all become, you know, it's about IP now. It's about mashups. It's about recognizable properties. I feel like the actual lines, the conceptual barriers that used to be between the high culture of Mrs. Howell and the low culture of Gilligan aren't really there anymore. And the, the, the divisions are really more symbolic. Uh, they're yeah, yeah. more, they're more for a point. But they're if not you ta- necessarily if you... about aesthetic choices. They're about, right. you know, I don't like capes and tights. I feel like that's saying, you know, that is saying, I don't like everything being this, but it can also be taken as saying, that's that's played out. That's tired. Yeah, yeah. That's child. Well, that's, it, you know, it's low culture. And I and I look at it from from the standpoint of at least you go into what to expect. So if someone said, oh, this is some really highbrow humor or this is lowbrow humor, you know that in the highbrow you will have some, you know, comment along and then some gas passed out of his buttocks. And then on the <laughs> low culture, it'll be like, yeah, he ripped a big old fart. And, you know, and you can kind of you use that as kind of a, a delineation to kind of know what you're expecting to go in there. But. Sure. So I, I think mean, from that point, it's about, valid, but I, I, but I also think that unfortunately it gets used in a derogatory way. Rodrigo, did you, do you want to weigh in? Sure. Um, it, it's interesting that you touched on it being derogatory because I don't think there's a way that it ever isn't derogatory. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's real interesting because, um, I think that most of the time high culture and low culture is mostly used to differentiate uh, basically rich people and poor people and the things that rich people like and the things that poor people like. Mm. Um, but in the United States, everybody fancies themselves like a underdog scrapper. Like you look at like their most, like the richest people that live in the United States, they all think of themselves as underdog scrappers, right? Mm. It's like, even though they have billions of dollars. So um, high culture and low culture is like, in like un inscrutable in the in the US because the majority of people say they want low culture. So low culture is like has become huge. That's where comic book movies come from, right? That's where um reality TV reality TV comes from. Like all this stuff, all the stuff that's very popular, you know, like um it's for the masses. It, yeah, it's all for the masses. And that makes high culture just like this small like sliver of like people that like maybe tune into like Will Shorts's uh stuff on NPR where he talks about doing the New York Times crossword or whatever mm-hmm. and they use you know, for the vowels. Yeah. Um you know, it, it just kind of leaves this like these like high culture slivers around that some people are into, but chances are those same people are into a lot of quote unquote low culture stuff because that's like by far that's what I think what is dominant in the United States. Mm-hmm. There was a time when you had the upper crust and the lower crust, and they watched and experienced different things, but now um, the majority of people enjoy what 
really used to be lowbrow stuff, but the term is almost useless now. Yeah. 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 It's, Except, it's, you know, it's uh, going baked into it to, mm-hmm. to have elitism mm-hmm. as yeah. part of, I mean, it, when you look at it, it's almost, you know, a, a breakdown from ar- aristocratic culture. You know, the idea yeah. that there's the intelligentsia, there's the smart people, there's the higher people. And, you know, specifically uh, American culture, but a lot of Western culture is against that notion of an aristocracy. You know, yeah. if you look at something like keeping up with the Kardashians, that is a universal punchline. And yet somehow it was the, one of the most popular things on basic cable week after week after week. People you say, oh, well, they're overexposed and all of this blobbity blue, but millions of people are still watching it. I mean, it's a keeping up with the Kardashians is a magnificent example of this thing that is considered very lowbrow. And yet we are tuning into the thing that is the closest America has to an aristocracy, right? Mm-hmm. Like to like very wealthy, like just born wealthy people uh, just kind of going about their very expensive days. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, you can bring this back around to our pre-show. Uh, there's also Shakespeare, which did cross the line. Uh, Ashley, yeah. you've been uh, studying some some German. Um, there's you know, there's also this idea of the the high Deutsch and the low Deutsch, at least whenever I was learning German in college, that the high Deutsch was the more proper. Formal way of speaking German. And then there was the lower With way your of speaking. Z's and your. Yeah, yeah. And then, there's, and then you have the lower Deutsch or the lower German, which was more slang terms and, and that kind of stuff that was that was brought in. So while there, at least in my opinion at the time, there was not a, you know, turning someone's nose down at someone that spoke the low German um, in order to understand German. Accents, you, yeah, right? yeah, you have to you have to learn the proper way. To get into that, do you have a do you want to weigh in on this? Because Carl's second part of his question is: If so, do you think that there are comics that cross the line from low to high, and what about them makes them different? You want to weigh in on that, Ashley? Oh, um, I I very much I I hate the demarcation between high and low art. Like, is it art or is it not? Some of the most beautiful art that I found is made by. Um, oh my gosh, I can't come up with a word, but it's like, it's a very derogatory word for people who use like found objects. Um, you know, they're, they're not formally trained. Oh, sure. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. God, I can't think of what, there's like a whole King of the Hill episode making fun of it. And there's a Simpsons episode making fun of it where it's like, look at these idiots with their pop can art. Um, like but Dada you can, stuff. No, it's, uh, no. Okay, I'm going to have to Google it. But um, <laughs> I don't like that distinction that just because you got a grant right. um, or some institution slapped an award on you that what you're doing is more worthwhile than than anything else. Um, I, it's also why I do not like the branding in the modern world, particularly in new media, which isn't that freaking new anymore, um, mm-hmm. of, of content creator. Like, no. <laughs> It's not like, cause to me, content is like, it's disposable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, it, it's like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not what I view what I do. And so I don't like that label. So like mm-hmm. if it's art and it is made with the intention of expressing something, it's art period. I don't care where it is, what the right. medium is. Art is art. If it makes yeah. you feel something, it's worth it. Sometimes that is, 
in the Louvre. And sometimes that is painted on a wall in South Central. And I think both are equally valid and equally important. Now I'm going to get off my soapbox. Sure. And no, no, no. Is it mom and pop art? Is it mom and pop, no, no. pop art? Because that was the 13th episode. Uh, of the it's outsider art. It's called outsider outside? art. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like they make it seem like some hillbilly came down from the Appalachians with a, a glass on a stick. And it was so, it's so artistic because he's so innocent that he couldn't possibly put yeah, any yeah. thought. And yeah. it just happened to be beautiful. Yeah. Like, I, it there was a, so angry. I watched a, another one of those video essays on YouTube where someone was, you know, uh, maybe being a little bit too much crawl up his own butt kind of uh, thoughts, but he was defending Martin Scorsese's um, semi attack on Marvel movies yeah. as, you know, not, oh, not movies, no not cinema. Or, I know. Like, like right. Spielberg talking about Netflix and then taking a huge right. deal with Apple TV. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. you're old. I get it. Right. No. It, it, and it's not necessarily about change, but it kind of goes into this idea of this elitism of, of culture that, you know, if you're a cinemaphile, then you look at movies as, this art, this high thing that you want to attain as opposed to from what Scorsese's essay was apparently trying to say that movies have just become this disposable wasteland of anything goes just to amuse the masses. And, you know, I, I think that you can have art that is both of those things and can cross all of those lines. I think, as I said, it's derogatory, but I, I really think that if you were to say it's a, you know, it's a, if you think about it in film genre, um, I think that helps you understand what you're going in and what you're expecting. Um, you know, Ashley and I used the the term earlier, a 24 film. Well, but with, for our language, we know what to expect when we say an a 24 film. Uh, right. Whereas, yeah. you know, does I mean, whatever. Uh, but well, one of the things that's... that 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 essay goes into that I wanted to bring back around was, are you a content creator or are you an artist? And, and right. this guy was like, well, if you're making true cinema, then you are an artist. And if you're sure. not, if you're just doing stuff for Netflix, then uh, you're just a I've content creator. <laughs> yeah. It's, but, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's pretty useless, right? It's a useless distinction and yeah. it becomes more useless as we move forward. And as more and more stuff comes out for streaming, um, you can you can have more useful classifications like an A24 film is much more useful than high art and low art, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. An educational piece is much more you like. Is there an educational component to this yeah. uh, that is much more relevant than you know whether this was a, um, a a video essay on YouTube and therefore I guess low art. Yeah, right. That's a, kind of the irony there, right? It's a documentary actually shot on on like actual cellulose and well, thus high art. Matthew, didn't like, you and I have this uh, discussion last week on Dooling Review pre-show or post-show about Christopher Nolan and mm -hmm. uh, how he only yeah. believes that stuff that that's a movie should be shot on film and you should only see movies in the movie theater and you should you're wasting your time and you are a heathen if you watch it on television yeah. or on a an, uh, an ipad i think we had had that conversation last week we did and you know we we touched on it then and rodrigo touched on it again here there's an inherent element of classism and in some ways nationalism kind of built into this discussion because you know we talk about shakespeare was disposable pop culture crap in the 15th 16th 17th century whenever it was i'm not good with numbers 
And, you know, there was a time when going to see a play in the round by Shakespeare was something that was for the lower class people, the agrarian people. And if you look at kind of a counterculture example, you know, when I say when I think about the argument of high and low culture, specifically as it relates to comic books, I think about an important thing that we sometimes forget about the early days of comic books. And that is the fact that Stan Lee was born Stanley Lieber and Max Gaines was born Maxwell Ginsburg and mm. Jack Kirby was Jacob Kurtzberg. And a lot of these people were in the comic industry building everything that we know in comic books from the ground up, partly because of the disproportional influence of Jewish creators who couldn't get jobs in the quote unquote real arts. So when you look at a you know a Absolutely. guy like Jack Kirby, who Jack Kirby changed his name first of all so that people would not go, hey, you know we can't hire this Jewish guy. Well, but no, he also changed it because he was embarrassed to write comics and he wanted to stay save Stanley Lieber for his quote unquote real writing. Right, but that's I mean that's the thing that you look at Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, very similar story. These are you know young creators, but they are all young creators who are Jewish and. As they started building these tropes of comics, you see that in play. You see how that shapes those early notes, notations of what comics are. And if you look at, you know, like early Superman's class warfare against the evil landlords and the bad people and the racists and the jerks, you know, Superman versus the Klan was one of our recent things. And that's something else that comes into play. It's when I talk about low culture, a lot of times it feels like we're just talking about a countercultural element, something that isn't that isn't in the upper class uh, for intentional reasons by the members of that upper class. And they're considered a bad influence or a subpar creator because of factors that they can't control. So I don't feel like comics do cross the line from low to high to address Carl's question simply because at that point, I feel like I'm validating a system that is, as I've said, archaic, no longer meaningful. And in a lot of ways, damaging both to the art and to the psychological, you know, wellness of the people reading the books and watching the movies and watching the TV shows. So, you know, at that said, I think there are comic books that are absolutely high art, but I'll, you know, that I think is a separate argument. They're still, you know, most of the time stapled paper pamphlets that cost, you know, a couple of bucks. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation this week on NPR's yes. comic book discussion forums. If you Brought enjoy you these by. kinds of conversations and deep thoughts, <laughs> don't worry. We have even more deep thoughts coming your way this week. Thanks to all of our fine fine fans over in our discord server who took the time to craft very well thought out questions for this week's show, such as this one from Jarmo who says, what in your opinion are the main reasons live action adaptations from animated properties, usually from Japan, but also older Western made fail to reach the popularity and acclaim of the original Ashley, Victoria Robinson. We're going to turn to you. <laughs> I'm trying to decide because there's only two female voices on NPR. If I'm going to go for the <laughs> soprano, if I'm going to go for the alto <laughs> option, go for, go for the alto. I want to hear it. 
Oh, don't worry. Uh, we can go the other end on this show as well, because uh, these these uh, crazy knuckleheads over in Discord decided to get into a whole uh, thing of how the how the word color is supposed to be spelled with a U or without a U. And they started asking a bunch of silly questions that involved uh, favorite vowels and whatnot. So we also didn't forget about those people as well. So just how, just like it looks color. You have too much time on your hands. Favorite I know, right? vowel. Is it the inability to understand what made a, a good story from the get go cultural detachment of the subject matter, the way and how they are produced lack of vision, or is it just, they already peaked and there's no mainstream audience to be found. I I have two very strong beliefs about anime to live action adaptation specifically. Okay, let's um, take tackle that one since Cowboy Bebop is the uh, is on everybody's lips right now, which I'm not not excited for. But um, much like Godzilla, I don't think American studios should make live action adaptations of anime because it is something that I think is quintessentially Japanese, and I don't think that we I don't think we get it. And I think that's why mm. the best the best live action manga adaptation is Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon, which was made in Japan with a Japanese cast. Uh, and almost none of the live action American studios um, are successful or, or critically successful. Um, and I, again, I, I lump in the Godzilla movies with that because Shin Godzilla is the best modern Godzilla yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so good. I, I think. Um, hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I also, you, you had another, I also another think, side. and this is something that I've seen pointed out by a lot of other people. Um, you, a big thing about making anime right is is the economy of panels and where you choose to spend your money, and that is what gives anime its distinctive style and the mood. And when you think of something like My Hero Academia, where even if it's the the UA Sports Festival. If it's Todoroki and Midoriya and they are facing down, there will be 15 whole seconds of a still panel of each of them as the camera, quote unquote, moves around them. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the mood and that's part of the style. And then that counterpoints all the lines that are going to come up later on when Midoriya finally uses um, his powers and like breaks his whole art. Like, and, And I don't think you can capture that in live action in the same way. I think there are some movies that get pretty close. I think actually Shang-Chi steals a lot, uh, apes a lot of that style as much as it's also boring from the Hong Kong style. But I also think it's the difference in the mediums. I think so. I think one of the main reasons why live action adaptations are made from this is because just like with superhero movies back in the 80s and the 90s, it anime is being looked at by a large portion of the population as I don't want to watch them cartoons where they don't even speak English. I don't even know what's going on. Right. So there's that part of the audience very much like if you were then to take that and turn it into a live adaptation, they'd be like, Oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. And then you say, well, this is based on an anime called cowboy bebop. They're like, huh? How about that? Very much like they're like, I sure do like that gangster film. And you're like, yeah, Road to Perdition, that's based on a comic book. And they also deride, you know, comic books in that in that same sentence, right? So I think that that, and I'm not saying that that's the right way to approach it, but I think that the execs look at this and say, nobody takes, just like comic books, like we were talking about a minute ago, nobody takes the anime seriously. And so therefore we have to do a live action adaptation in order to at- at- attract that other portion of the Venn diagram to the movie theater. 
And I, I think that's, I think that's the main reason. For me, I feel like adaptations are always difficult because when something is created, be it created as a comic or a cartoon or a stop motion, you know, uh, rubber chicken thing like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it's created in a particular medium. It's created with specific tools. And when you translate it to a different medium, you have different tools and you Mm -hmm. can't just, you can't take your hammer and, you know, drive screws into the wood of a live action movie the way you would, you know, if you were just hammering nails into a cartoon. And that is an awesome metaphor. You need to write that down, kids. But when you take like, for instance, uh, one of the listed ones that I've seen both versions of the last Airbender movie is bad because it takes all the things that made Avatar the last Airbender, the cartoon unique and says these are weird edges that need to be sanded down to make this a more palatable blockbuster movie and uh, that's a, on that's one like hand, that's what you have to do for an adaptation yeah, you that's to- the weirdest thing about the last airbender is that Shyamalan went into that just saying my kids are into this i'm not really sure what it's about but i'm going to adapt it without really understanding it exactly he didn't even have an appreciation of it. And I feel right. like that's part of it. You know, when you look at things like when I was growing up, we had G force and it's not the same as an adaptation, but it is a regionalization of a Japanese cartoon that was bloody and weird and sexy and bizarre and had a main character who was gender fluid and would change from being a man to being a woman. And then you would bring it over to America and they'd be like, Oh yes, this is his little sister. Tee you have those moments where, you know, oh, yes, that's uh, that's her cousin. Why are they kissing? Oh, they're very close. You know, you have those moments of when you're adapting something, you have to take into account what it used to be. And sometimes what it used to be is specific to cartoons or comic books. And what it used to be, you put it on film and it just it it you could do a perfect shot for shot adaptation of something and you know what you'd walk away with frank miller's the spirit and that's a god-awful movie you should never watch it you should never let your friends watch it you should tell everyone you know to not watch it wrong sir but, rodrigo lopez please share your ideas shut up <laughs> um so tone it tone it tone it it's it's interesting that comic book or, or superhero movies got brought up because you uh, a question you could ask to, to sort of put this in perspective is why are comic book superhero movies successful now where they weren't before? And a big part of that reason is an accepted language, right? It used to be that anytime anybody translated superheroes to the big screen, they would have to create language like create visual language around that to justify to smooth out to bring these things to life and people would watch that and be like no that's not right right uh examples of this steel right that whole Mm -hmm. movie Mm -hmm. um we talk about the angly hulk where um there's like flying comic book panels right it's like is is the panels is it the panels that make superheroes interesting asks ang lee and the answer is no it's not Um, you're doing it wrong 
yeah, so then we get to, I would say, two movies that brought us here are definitely Blade and its sequels and The Matrix, showing us kind of how to do big special effects kinetic action, right? Blade essentially writing down the Bible of how you do a superhero adaptation and The Matrix giving us all of those special effects tricks um, to make somebody hanging from a wire actually look kinetic, right? And again, Hong Kong was doing this a, a thousand years ago, but you need to translate that, not from Chinese to English, but from Hong Kong media to American media, right? Now that all that stuff is translated, you can just pop out a superhero movie like Marvel has been doing, and you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. We already know what superheroes look like, what they're capable of, how they move, how a superhero movie should move, uh, etc. So obviously anime is not a genre, but a huge collection of genres, but it has language in common, visual language in common. The day somebody finally cracks it, and manages to make either a decent um, uh, bubblegum bubble crisis or a decent Your Lie in April movie or whatever, um, it, the, the floodgates will open and people will start accepting anime movies um, in that sense, or at least particular wedges or genres of, of anime stuff. Mm -hmm. J. Michael T. says, The Unspooled Podcast discussed discuss this briefly, but I thought it was an interesting question. Which is more influ influential to pop culture, Roadrunner or Mickey Mouse? Depends on what you mean by influential. Yeah, well, influential to pop culture. My answer would definitely be Mickey Mouse. Uh, and, and when you say influential, I think you have to look at the, at the overall history. Now, uh, J. Michael T. says his opinion, Roadrunner, because um, the characters had personalities and were involved in scenarios that have influenced pop culture across movies, TV shows, whereas Mickey Mouse has been diluted to a global property that mostly exists to represent the Disney corporation and has to be bland and risk averse. I would say it's just the opposite of that, right? Uh, Mickey mouse came out long before road runner, uh, and really kind of reshaped animation and pop culture ever since then. Um, you know, you, without Mickey mouse, you wouldn't have the Looney tunes, uh, without Mickey mouse, you wouldn't have had snow white and the seven dwarfs without Mickey mouse. You wouldn't have, theme parks and uh, live action motion pictures, you wouldn't have built an empire that literally owns everything that you love. Marvel, Disney, uh, Star Wars, all of these the kinds Simpsons. of things. Yeah, the Simpsons, uh, Alien, Buffy now. So when you look at it, I think Mickey Mouse is more influential because of what it has led to. And even though Disney may be a huge media conglomerate that owns everything, we wouldn't have the Shang-Chi movie if it wasn't for Mickey Mouse at this point. So I'm going to, I'm going to argue Mickey Mouse. Anybody else uh, agree, disagree? I believe um, visually in terms of what cartoons look like now, what cartoons looked like in 1933 and what cartoons look like in 1950s. I'm going to say Roadrunner has a, big, a bigger influence on animation as it exists today, simply because Chuck Jones was rewriting the rules, you know, the, the Bob Clampett school, the old school, sure, sure. everything is, you know, a gag, a gag, a gag. 
Chuck did a lot of things that, you know, in 1953, 1958, they were like, what are you doing? You can't do that. You can't do the squash and stretch like that. You can't do these smear effects. You can't do these wild, you know, explosion moments. Or you're breaking the rules when you stay on that long overhead shot and just let the coyote fall and be tiny. And then you hear the far away. All of those things have influenced the visual lexicon of animation in ways that I don't necessarily feel that Walt Disney's work or, you know, any of those dudes work on those Disney cartoons does because those cartoons are now antiques. And when you look at modern Disney works, when you look at the stuff that's coming out of Disney cartoon studios these days, they're very much influenced by the Looney Tunes of the 50s and 60s. And, you know, all of the modern Looney Tunes is just basically built on McKimson and Chuck Jones and a couple of other guys in there. But I, I understand Stephen's point. I would also point out that, you know, Stephen loves Disney a lot. Yeah, I, but I also realize that Disney is very problematic. Um, also, again, we're talking all of pop culture, not just animation, right? So when we talk about all of pop culture, well, Disney's... are we talking about the characters or are we talking about the corporation? Yeah, see, that's 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 where it gets into it because I mean, I have a strong, I have a strong thought that if you went to any country in the world and you showed them a picture of Mickey Mouse, most people around the world would instantly recognize Mickey Mouse. I'm not sure most people around the world would instantly recognize the Roadrunner. It depends on how you define influence, too. So, yeah. yeah. So, I think, um, unfortunately, it is Mickey Mouse, right? And it's for a meta reason. Mickey Mouse is the most influential because it continues to warp copyright law uh, <laughs> in the United States. It, and he's the reason why copyright law has been changed, in yeah. fact. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Um, so... Uh, the Roadrunner benefits from that, or, or rather Warner Brothers benefits from that uh, in maintaining control of the Roadrunner. But yeah, unfortunately, the most influential cartoon character is Mickey Mouse. Um, and the Disney Corporation will basically form into a giant Voltron and eat the Supreme Court before mm-hmm. they let that animal go. And Mickey will form the head. Ashley, thoughts? Yep. It's really tough because um, I I fear the answer is Mickey Mouse, even though Mickey Mouse as a character himself has done nothing of note for. Oh, I mean, you, you need to watch the Mickey Mouse years. Clubhouse. Yeah, that's where the real um, Mickey action or, or is. Or the at. shorts. I don't know if you guys have seen the new shorts. Yeah, I hate the animation. And, and, I like those. I, Good. You should. I mean, it's something different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I recently learned that Mickey Mouse's um, whole color palette slash makeup is um and oh is um yeah i don't want to say problematic but that it yeah yeah, and that like i that's really hard for me um i don't have any mickey mouse iconography in my home but if i did it, it it would be really tough for me um so i don't want something as impactful and as important as it is that ties into something so ugly to be as influential as it is and yeah, yeah, yeah. someone somewhere is telling is screaming that i'm naive to think it's the only one and i'm i i am by no means i'm saying that uh, i don't think warner brothers animation has done the same thing i've yeah there's still tom and jerry characters with the with the mammies it's yeah. not great either but um that's not you know that's not who the roadrunner is or but i don't know it's tough i think 
I think this is a hard conversation to parse because we're getting lost in the corporate power of Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, even though arguably Disney in certainly in the last 20 years has benefited more from properties they've bought than anything original, but it's only I because say this is somebody of literally sitting in a haunted mansion shirt right now. So yeah. I understand the hypocrisy, No, no, but, but, but also to understand that in order for Disney to be able to buy those properties and to keep those properties going, Mickey mouse, you know, it's, it's called, you know, it's the house of mouse. Uh, it built the fortune that allowed all of these things to continue. So it, it is very problematic. Um, J. Michael T also asks, was the movie Dune worth remaking? I haven't seen it, so I can't tell you, but I do know that the uh, first one was kind of wackadoo, so I'll be interested to see what they do with it. The story of Dune, I think, is worth remaking, but I also think it's impossible to turn into one coherent movie. I mean, you're talking about, what, like seven, eight books in a shared universe? Rodrigo? Uh, I understand that Dune is a very, even just the the first book is very dense. So, you know, I I think that people looked at the fact that the Lord of the Rings was going to be a thing that, you know, they were adapting uh, the the first book and, and eventually all three. And they were like, there is no way. There is too much garbage, and they're not going to know when they're adapting and cutting what's the garbage and what's the absolutely perfect stuff that you need to keep. And really, from reception, I think that Peter Jackson nailed it, right? So you have to assume that it's possible. Um, It just takes somebody who both understands the text and knows what the chaff is you know, when it comes to an adaptation, even though it might be oh, Tom Bombadil, what of yeah, Tom I mean, Bombadil? That is, that is absolutely, absolutely it, right? People love Tom Bombadil and they cut it out of the movie and people are like, oh, they cut out Tom Bombadil. Oh, well, I'm going to watch this extended <laughs> edition of the Lord of the Rings yeah. again, you know, oh, actually, like, people still love it. rubbish character. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody didn't watch the Lord of the Rings because they were mad about Tom Bombadil. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah. Ashley, thoughts on Dune <laughs> without going into the Pom- your love for uh, Tom Bombadil? Uh, the best part about the Tom Bombadil scene is that all the hobbits lay naked together in the grass. And I think that's <laughs> very funny every time. Um, I couldn't go see the screening I got invited to for Dune, which makes me sad. Um, so I'm going to have to see it on my home screen like everyone else. Um I don't know, because there's a lot of big stories like that, right? Like, I kind of think you can't tell a King Arthur story on film mm-hmm. unless it is something as specific as the Green Knight. Um, and certainly giving him lightsabers is a choice. And I wonder, having only read Dune, finished reading Dune last year, I wonder if it is too much and too complicated. But I'm excited to see them try because even that um, made-for-TV movie where James McAvoy turned into a bunch of worms was, like, not not entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, there you go. All right. I don't understand this question. What happened to Mark Wade? Um, he's working over at Marvel. He's doing some he's stuff doing for DC. He's doing just fine. Yeah. Um, he's also got a... Um, winning award. Yeah. He's also got a, uh, a class that you can take from him on writing comics. He does it only, like, once every three months or something like that. But he'll pop up. Through Comics Portal? I believe so. 
Um, I haven't taken, I'd be very interested in it, but I, my understanding it's a live event and I can't make the live events. So there you go. Um, let's see. Uh, these are really great questions. You guys, um, Lagna says we've only got time for like one or two more. I, I would love to continue this and do a whole bunch of shows like this, especially when you guys write in some really great questions. I think it's provoked a lot of, of great thought, a lot of great, uh, discussion this week on the show. So thank you everybody for that. Uh, if, if you haven't get over onto the major spoilers discord, there's a link in the show notes because that's where everybody's posting their questions and just interacting with one another. Uh, if you're, uh, if you were interested in what I was talking about earlier with Matthew and I talking about Christopher Nolan and, uh, the dueling review pre-show, we record the dueling review podcast live at eight o'clock PM central time. And so about seven thirty, seven forty, or whenever we both get in there, we usually talk for about 15 or 20 minutes with everybody that's live in the chat with us. And then usually another five or 10 minutes after the show is done recording. So if you want to hear more of that, definitely hook up to the major spoilers discord server. It would be great if I could make a Patreon goal where we did something like this more often and separate from the major spoilers podcast. But I, I think we need some more patrons for that. So you can find out more. Uh, on how you can become a patron if you're not already at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Um, question from Lagnus. Maybe this is the one that we're going to go out on. Are there no horse comics in the U.S.? Has there ever been? Here, that's a pretty big market. So just curious. Well, nobody can draw horses, so that's why we don't have any horse comics in the U.S. Not in years. Horse comics kind of went away when Western comics did. But if you go back to about the period from about 1948, when superheroes were on the wane, to about 1954 or 55, when the superheroes came back, there are a lot of Western comics. And I know specifically uh, Silver, the Lone Ranger's horse, and uh, Roy Rogers' horse, Trigger, had their own books. There was a long-running Black Fury comic from Charlton, which was a knockoff of Black Beauty. But yeah, horse comics really aren't a thing in modern American comic books, unless you're counting Dark Horse, which and that's a different thing. By by horse comics, it, it, that means comics where the main protagonist is a horse or that feature that's, horses prominently. That's what I'm guessing. I mean, we haven't seen Comet around in a long time. That's my guess, mm. is that it, it has to do with horses as I the guess, main character. I guess we're not counting My Little Pony. Uh-huh. Aha! Good one, Ashley Those Victoria Robinson horses. for the win. Thank you. Ashley, where can people find more of you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, and you can tweet me your hot takes on Titans. I'd love to talk to people about that. The last time I tweeted about it, people got really angry with me at <laughs> Ashley B. Robinson. The B is very important. Also, um, I'm doing a bunch of shows in LA. My Halloween show got extended for one more weekend. So come and see me. How, how has that been? I noticed that you're the theater is covered in plastic. Is that because there's lots of blood spilled during the show or is that a COVID thing? That's a COVID thing for rehearsals. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I was, during I was just the show, curious. They're not, they're not hanging, but people are required to wear masks. Okay. Very cool. All right. Uh, yeah. so go check that, those shows out that Ashley's in. I'm sure she will be in a lot more in the near future. Matthew, where can people find more of you? You can find me uh, basically hanging around Ashley's Instagram. It's fascinating and awesome. I don't really say anything there. And on the Twitter at <laughs> Mighty King Cobra, where I spend my lunch hour every day, espousing about uh, 
nonsense superheroes of the past future and uh the past of the future so you can do that that's fun rodrigo what about you uh you can find me at fearsome critter on twitter um that's pretty much the main gateway to the the stuff i'm doing obviously all the podcasts that, that i'm on for major spoilers which is like another couple ones and of course, you can find me at Major Spoilers and everything at Major Spoilers can be found at Majorspoilers.com. Um, you know what? I have been and I found out that this is something that has uh, lessened a lot of my stress recently is I'm spending less and less time with my eyeballs glued to the Twitter feed. Uh, but do reach out. I, I will respond to you if you reach out to me. But uh, you may not may notice that I'm I'm not posting a lot of here's my hot take on this thing as much anymore. Uh, because I just don't think that it's, uh, number one, interesting for you, and number two, it's not healthy for the rest of us. So if, if you don't see me just uh, quoting uh, crazy things on the Internet, uh, on Twitter, you can still reach out to me. I'm still there. Don't worry. At Major Spoilers, and that's where we will be. And we will be back next week on the Major Spoilers podcast. Uh, why? Because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we will talk with you soon. Fat Dick's revision of Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well, I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew He kicked my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler, what a major spoiler. If I'm star raving rich like a man of iron, I might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the heart cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read upon all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fun being in the Middle East with a King Santo and soldier. What a major spoiler, what a major spoiler, yeah, 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 what a major spoiler, whoa, 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 what a major spoiler. This podcast is copyright 2021 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! 
Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs. Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.